Macbeth, from Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Karen Savage, Waco, Texas, May 2007. Tales from Shakespeare, by Charles and Mary Lamb. Macbeth. When Duncan the Meek reigned King of Scotland, there lived a great thane, or lord, called Macbeth. This Macbeth was a near kinsman to the king, and in great esteem at court for his valour and conduct in the wars, an example of which he had lately given in defeating a rebel army assisted by the troops of Norway in terrible numbers. The two Scottish generals, Macbeth and Banquo, returning victorious from this great battle, their way lay over a blasted heath, where they were stopped by the strange appearance of three figures like women, except that they had beards, and their withered skins and wild attire made them look not like any earthly creatures. Macbeth first addressed them, when they seemingly offended, laid each one her choppy finger upon her skinny lips in token of silence, and the first of them saluted Macbeth with the title of Thane of Glamis. The general was not a little startled to find himself known by such creatures, but how much more, when the second of them followed up that salute by giving him the title of Thane of Cawdor, to which honour he had no pretensions, and again the third bid him, All hail, that shalt be king hereafter. Such a prophetic greeting might well amaze him, who knew that while the king's sons lived he could not hope to succeed to the throne. Then, turning to Banquo, they pronounced him, in a sort of riddling terms, to be lesser than Macbeth and greater, not so happy, but much happier, and prophesied that though he should never reign, yet his sons after him should be kings in Scotland. They then turned into air and vanished, by which the generals knew them to be the weird sisters or witches. While they stood pondering on the strangeness of this adventure, there arrived certain messengers from the king, who were empowered by him to confer upon Macbeth the dignity of Thane of Cawdor. An event so miraculously corresponding with the prediction of the witches astonished Macbeth, and he stood rapt in amazement, unable to make reply to the messengers. And in that point of time swelling hopes arose in his mind that the prediction of the third witch might, in like manner, have its accomplishment, and that he should one day reign king in Scotland. Turning to Banquo, he said, "'Do you not hope that your children shall be kings, when what the witches promised to me has so wonderfully come to pass?' "'That hope,' answered the general, might enkindle you to aim at the throne, but oftentimes these ministers of darkness tell us truths in little things to betray us into deeds of greatest consequence. But the wicked suggestions of the witches had sunk too deep into the mind of Macbeth to allow him to attend to the warnings of good Banquo. From that time he bent all his thoughts how to compass the throne of Scotland. Macbeth had a wife, to whom he communicated the strange prediction of the weird sisters and its partial accomplishment. She was a bad, ambitious woman, and so as her husband and herself could arrive at greatness, she cared not much by what means. She spurred on the reluctant purpose of Macbeth, who felt compunction at the thoughts of blood, and did not cease to represent the murder of the king as a step absolutely necessary to the fulfilment of the flattering prophecy. It happened at this time that the king, who out of his royal condescension would oftentimes visit his principal nobility upon gracious terms, came to Macbeth's house, attended by his two sons, Malcolm and Donalbane, and a numerous train of thanes and attendants, the more to honour Macbeth for the triumphal success of his wars. The castle of Macbeth was pleasantly situated, and the air about it was sweet and wholesome, which appeared by the nests which the martlet, or swallow, had built under all the jutting friezes and buttresses of the building, wherever it found a place of advantage for where those birds most breed and haunt, the air is observed to be delicate. 
The king entered, well pleased with the place, and not less so by the attentions and respect of his honoured hostess, Lady Macbeth, who had the art of covering treacherous purposes with smiles, and could look like the innocent flower, while she was indeed serpent under it. The king, being tired with his journey, went to bed early, and in his state-room two grooms of his chamber, as was the custom, beside him. He had been unusually pleased with his reception, and had made presents before he retired to his principal, and among the rest had sent a diamond to Lady Macbeth, greeting the name of his most kind hostess. Now was the middle of the night, when over half the world nature seems dead, and wicked dreams abuse men's minds asleep, and none but the wolf and the murderer are abroad. This was the time when Lady Macbeth waked to plot the murder of the king. She would not have undertaken a deed so abhorrent to her sex, but that she feared her husband's nature, that it was too full of the milk of human kindness to do a contrived murder. She knew him to be ambitious, but withal to be scrupulous, and not yet prepared for that height of crime which commonly in the end of company's inordinate ambition. She had won him to consent to the murder, but she doubted his resolution, and she feared that the natural tenderness of his disposition, more humane than her own, would come between and defeat the purpose. So with her own hands armed with a dagger she approached the king's bed, having taken care to ply the grooms of his chamber so with wine, that they slept intoxicated and careless of their charge. There lay Duncan in a sound sleep after the fatigues of his journey, and as she viewed him earnestly there was something in his face, as he slept, which resembled her own father, and she had not the courage to proceed. She returned to confer with her husband. His resolution had begun to stagger. He considered that there were strong reasons against the deed. In the first place, he was not only a subject, but a near kinsman to the king. And he had been his host and entertainer that day, whose duty, by the laws of hospitality, it was to shut the door against his murderers, not bear the knife himself. Then he considered how just and merciful a king this Duncan had been, how clear of offence to his subjects, how loving to his nobility, and in particular to him, that such kings are the peculiar care of heaven, that their subjects doubly bound to revenge their debts. Besides, by the favours of the king, Macbeth stood high in the opinion of all sorts of men, and how would those honours be stained by the reputation of so foul a murder? In these conflicts of the mind Lady Macbeth found her husband, inclining to the better part and resolving to proceed no further. But she, being a woman not easily shaken from her evil purpose, began to pour in at his ears words which infused a portion of her own spirit into his mind, assigning reason upon reason why he should not shrink from what he had undertaken how easy the deed was, how soon it would be over, and how the action of one short night would give to all their nights and days to come sovereign sway and royalty. Then she threw contempt on his change of purpose, and accused him of fickleness and cowardice, and declared that she had given suck, and knew how tender it was to love the babe that milked her, but she would, while it was smiling in her face, have plucked it from her breast and dashed its brains out if she had so sworn to do it, as he had sworn to perform that murder. Then she added how practicable it was to lay the guilt of the deed upon the drunken, sleepy grooms, and with the valour of her tongue she so chastised his sluggish resolutions that he once more summoned up courage to the bloody business. So, taking the dagger in his hand, he softly stole in the dark to the room where Duncan lay, and as he went he thought he saw another dagger in the air, with the handle toward him, and on the blade, and at the point of it, drops of blood. But when he tried to grasp at it, it was nothing but air a mere phantasm proceeding from his own hot and oppressed brain, and the business he had in hand. Getting rid of this fear, he entered the king's room, whom he dispatched with one stroke of his dagger. Just as he had done the murder, one of the grooms, who slept in the chamber, laughed in his sleep, and the other cried, Murder! which woke them both. But they said a short prayer. One of them said, God bless us, 
and the other answered, Amen, and addressed themselves to sleep again. Macbeth, who stood listening to them, tried to say Amen, when the fellow said, God bless us, but though he had most need of a blessing, the words stuck in his throat, and he could not pronounce it. Again he thought he heard a voice which cried, Sleep no more! Macbeth doth murder sleep, the innocent sleep that nourishes life. Still it cried, Sleep no more to all the house. Glamis hath murdered sleep, and therefore Cordor shall sleep no more, Macbeth shall sleep no more. With such horrible imaginations Macbeth returned to his listening wife, who began to think he had failed of his purpose, and that the deed was somehow frustrated. He came in so distracted a state that she reproached him with his want of firmness, and sent him to wash his hands of the blood which stained them, while she took his dagger, with purpose to stain the cheeks of the grooms with blood, to make it seem their guilt. Morning came, and with it the discovery of the murder, which could not be concealed, and though Macbeth and his lady made great show of grief, and the proofs against the grooms, the dagger being produced against them, and their faces smeared with blood, were sufficiently strong, yet the entire suspicion fell upon Macbeth, whose inducements to such a deed were so much more forcible than such poor silly grooms could be supposed to have, and Duncan's two sons fled. Malcolm the eldest sought for refuge in the English court, and the youngest, Donalbane, made his escape to Ireland. The king's sons, who should have succeeded him, having thus vacated the throne, Macbeth as next heir was crowned king, and thus the prediction of the weird sisters was literally accomplished. Though placed so high, Macbeth and his queen could not forget the prophecy of the weird sisters that, though Macbeth should be king, yet not his children, but the children of Banquo should be kings after him. The thought of this, and that they had defiled their hands with blood, and done so great crimes only to place the posterity of Banquo upon the throne, so rankled within them, that they determined to put to death both Banquo and his son, to make void the predictions of the weird sisters, which, in their own case, had been so remarkably brought to pass. For this purpose they made a great supper, to which they invited all the chief thanes, and among the rest, with marks of particular respect, Banquo and his son Fleance were invited. The way by which Banquo was to pass to the palace at night was beset by murderers appointed by Macbeth, who stabbed Banquo, but in the scuffle Fleance escaped. From that Fleance descended a race of monarchs who afterwards filled the Scottish throne, ending with James the Sixth of Scotland and the First of England, under whom the two crowns of England and Scotland were united. At supper the Queen, whose manners were in the highest degree affable and royal, played the hostess with a gracefulness and attention which conciliated every one present, and Macbeth discoursed freely with his thanes and nobles, saying that all that was honourable in the country was under his roof, if he had but his good friend Banquo present, whom yet he hoped he should rather have to chide for neglect than to lament for any mischance. Just at these words the ghost of Banquo, whom he had caused to be murdered, entered the room, and placed himself on the chair which Macbeth was about to occupy. Though Macbeth was a bold man, and one that could have faced the devil without trembling, at this horrible sight his cheeks turned white with fear, and he stood quite unmanned, with his eyes fixed upon the ghost. His queen and all the nobles, who saw nothing but perceived him gazing, as they thought, upon an empty chair, took it for a fit of distraction, and she reproached him, whispering that it was but the same fancy which made him see the dagger in the air when he was about to kill Duncan and gave no heed to all they could say, while he addressed it with distracted words, yet so significant that his queen, fearing the dreadful secret would be disclosed, in great haste dismissed the guests, excusing the infirmity of Macbeth as a disorder he was often troubled with. To such dreadful fancies Macbeth was subject. His queen and he had their sleeps afflicted with terrible dreams, and the blood of Banquo troubled them not more than the escape of Fleance, whom now they looked upon as father to a line of kings who should keep their posterity out of the throne. 
With these miserable thoughts they found no peace, and Macbeth determined once more to seek out the weird sisters, and know from them the worst. He sought them in a cave upon the heath, where they, who knew by foresight of his coming, were engaged in preparing their dreadful charms, by which they conjured up infernal spirits to reveal to them futurity. Their horrid ingredients were toads, bats, and serpents, the eye of a newt and the tongue of a dog, the leg of a lizard and the wing of the night-owl, the scale of a dragon, the tooth of a wolf, the maw of the ravenous salt-sea shark, the mummy of a witch, the root of the poisonous hemlock—this to have effect must be digged in the dark—the gall of a goat and the liver of a Jew, with slips of the yew-tree that roots itself in graves, and the finger of a dead child. All these were set on to boil in a great kettle or cauldron, which, as fast as it grew too hot, was cooled with a baboon's blood. To these they poured in the blood of a sow that had eaten her young, and they threw into the flame the grease that had sweated from a murderer's gibbet. By these charms they bound the infernal spirit to answer their questions. It was demanded of Macbeth whether he would have his doubts resolved by them or by their masters, the spirits. He, nothing daunted by the dreadful ceremonies which he saw, boldly answered, Where are they? Let me see them. And they called the spirits, which were three. And the first arose in the likeness of an armed head, and he called Macbeth by name, and bid him beware of the thane of Fife, for which caution Macbeth thanked him, for Macbeth had entertained a jealousy of Macduff, the thane of Fife. And the second spirit arose in the likeness of a bloody child, and he called Macbeth by name, and bid him have no fear, but laugh to scorn the power of man, for none of woman born should have power to hurt him, and he advised him to be bloody, bold, and resolute. "'Then live, Macduff,' cried the king. "'What need I fear thee?' But yet I will make assurance doubly sure. Thou shalt not live, that I may tell pale-hearted fear it lies, and sleep in spite of thunder. That spirit being dismissed, a third arose, in the form of a child crowned, with a tree in his hand. He called Macbeth by name, and comforted him against conspiracies, saying that he should never be vanquished, until the wood of Burnham, to Dunsinane Hill, should come against him. "'Sweet boldments! Good!' cried Macbeth. "'Who can unfix the forest, and move it from its earth-bound roots?' I see I shall live the usual period of man's life, and not be cut off by a violent death. But my heart throbs to know one thing. Tell me, if your art can tell so much, if Banquo's issue shall ever reign in this kingdom. Here the cauldron sank into the ground, and a noise of music was heard, and eight shadows, like kings, passed by Macbeth, and Banquo last, who bore a glass which showed the figures of many more, and Banquo, all bloody, smiled upon Macbeth, and pointed to them by which Macbeth knew that these were the posterity of Banquo, who should reign after him in Scotland. And the witches, with a sound of soft music and with dancing, making a show of duty and welcome to Macbeth, vanished. And from this time the thoughts of Macbeth were all bloody and dreadful. The first thing he heard when he got out of the witches' cave was that Macduff, thane of Fife, had fled to England to join the army which was forming up against him under Malcolm, the eldest son of the late king, with intent to displace Macbeth and set Malcolm, the right heir, upon the throne. Macbeth, stung with rage, set upon the castle of Macduff, and put his wife and children, whom the thane had left behind, to the sword, and extended the slaughter to all who claimed the least relationship to Macduff. These and such like deeds alienated the minds of all his chief nobility from him. Such as could fled to join with Malcolm and Macduff, who were now approaching with a powerful army which they had raised in England, and the rest secretly wished success to their arms, though, for fear of Macbeth, they could take no active part. His recruits went on slowly. Everybody hated the tyrant, nobody loved or honoured him, but all suspected him, and he began to envy the condition of Duncan, whom he had murdered, who slept soundly in his grave against whom treason had done its worst. 
Steel nor poison, domestic malice nor foreign levies, could hurt him any longer. While these things were acting, the Queen, who had been the sole partner in his wickedness, in whose bosom he could sometimes seek a momentary repose from those terrible dreams which afflicted them both nightly, died, it is supposed by her own hands, unable to bear the remorse of guilt and public hate, by which event he was left alone, without a soul to love or care for him, or a friend to whom he could confide his wicked purposes. He grew careless of life, and wished for death but the near approach of Malcolm's army roused in him what remained of his ancient courage, and he determined to die, as he expressed it, with armour on his back. Besides this, the hollow promises of the witches had filled him with a false confidence, and he remembered the sayings of the spirits, that none of woman born was to hurt him, and that he was never to be vanquished till Burnham Wood should come to Dunsinane, which he thought could never be. So he shut himself up in his castle, whose impregnable strength was such as defied a siege. Here he sullenly waited the approach of Malcolm. When, upon a day, there came a messenger to him, pale and shaking with fear, almost unable to report that which he had seen, for he averred that as he stood upon his watch on the hill, he looked toward Burnham, and, to his thinking, the wood began to move. "'Liar and slave!' cried Macbeth. "'If thou speak'st false, thou shalt hang alive upon the next tree till famine end thee. If thy tale be true, I care not if thou dost as much by me.' For Macbeth now began to faint in resolution, and to doubt the equivocal speeches of the spirits. He was not to fear till Burnham Wood should come to Dunsinane, and now a wood did move. However, said he, if this which he avouches be true, let us arm and out. There is no flying hence, nor staying here. I begin to be weary of the sun, and wish my life at an end. With these desperate speeches he sallied forth upon the besiegers, who had now come up to the castle. The strange appearance which had given the messenger an idea of a wood moving is easily solved. When the besieging army marched through the wood of Burnham, Malcolm, like a skilful general, instructed his soldiers to hew down every one a bough, and bear it before him, by way of concealing the true numbers of his host. This marching of the soldiers with boughs had at a distance the appearance which had frightened the messenger. Thus were the words of the spirit brought to pass, in a sense different from that in which Macbeth had understood them, and one great hold of his confidence was gone. And now a severe skirmishing took place, in which Macbeth, though feebly supported by those who called themselves his friends, but in reality hated the tyrant, and inclined to the party of Malcolm and Macduff, yet fought with the extreme of rage and valour, cutting to pieces all who were opposed to him, till he came to where Macduff was fighting. Seeing Macduff, and remembering the caution of the spirit who had counselled him to avoid Macduff above all men, he would have turned. But Macduff, who had been seeking him through the whole fight, opposed his turning, and a fierce contest ensued, Macduff giving him many foul reproaches for the murder of his wife and children. Macbeth, whose soul was charged enough with blood of that family already, would still have declined the combat, but Macduff still urged him to it, calling him tyrant, murderer, hell-hound, and villain. Then Macbeth remembered the words of the spirit, how none of woman born should hurt him, and, smiling confidently, he said to Macduff, "'Thou losest thy labour, Macduff.' as easily thou mayst impress the air with thy sword as make me vulnerable. I bear a charmed life, which must not yield to one of woman born. Despair thy charm, said Macduff, and let that lying spirit whom thou hast served tell thee that Macduff was never born of woman, never as the ordinary manner of men is to be born, but was untimely taken from his mother. Accursed be the tongue which tells me so, said the trembling Macbeth, who felt his last hold of confidence give way, and let never man in future believe the lying equivocations of witches and juggling spirits who deceive us in words which have double senses, and while they keep their promise literally, disappoint our hopes with a different meaning. I will not fight with thee. Then live, 
said the scornful Macduff. "'We will have a show of thee, as men show monsters, and a painted board, on which will be written, Here may men see the tyrant.' "'Never!' said Macbeth, whose courage returned with despair. "'I will not live to kiss the ground before young Malcolm's feet, to be baited with the curses of the rabble. Though Burnham would be come to Dunsinane, and thou opposed to me, who wast born of woman, yet will I try the last.' With these frantic words he threw himself upon Macduff, who, after a severe struggle, in the end overcame him, and, cutting off his head, made a present of it to the young and lawful king, Malcolm, who took upon him the government, which, by the machinations of the usurper, he had so long been deprived of, and ascended the throne of Duncan the Meek among the acclamations of the nobles and the people. End of story.